Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, welcome to News Fix from 7 News. I'm Angela Cox. Thanks for joining me. And it took the strength again of a coalition government, Mr Speaker. The people of Australia will remember this We are elected to this place to solve problems, to find common ground where we can. A state in which someone with a long surname and a woman can be the Premier of New South Wales. The coalition's lopsided effort in New South Wales is stirring internal friction. Several government MPs have warned Scott Morrison that if he does do that, they would lose their seats. Well, when I have gone to the Governor-General, then people will know what day the election will be held on. Australia is days away from the next federal budget and just a few weeks away from a general election. They know they'll be next to face off at the polls and they're working on their bedside manner. While the media and public's attention would normally be on the opposition party at this time, almost everyone is looking at the government, a coalition of the Liberal and National parties. If current opinion polls hold true, Scott Morrison's government appears set for defeat. The Liberal Party and other people have to understand there is a different message in regional areas. In part due to its own party's disconnect with city voters on issues from climate change to gun control, but also because the coalition partner of 99 years, the National Party, has seemingly lost touch with its constituents. The rise of uh, some of those smaller parties and independents show that no major party can take the voter for granted. Is this political marriage of the city and country headed for defeat and then divorce? And in two months from now, we'll be back here celebrating another Liberal National Government return to office. Mark Riley, 7 News. Mark Riley is our chief political editor for 7 News, based in Canberra. Mark won a Walkley Award in 1999 for his part in the coverage of East Timor's independence and he is the current Walkley Award winner for opinion, analysis, commentary and critique and has been with Seven News for 15 years. That's quite a mouthful, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) I love talking politics with you. Probably not loving the actual political talk as much as you do, but I like talking to you because you always put things in context in a way everyone understands you don't make any of us feel silly or stupid if we don't know the ins and out like you do. Were you surprised by the result of the New South Wales election? Yeah, look, a little surprised, Ange, because the polling had told us it was going to be very, very close and the likelihood was that it'd be a minority government uh, one way or the other. Um, The Liberal Party looked like losing uh, two or three or possibly even four seats within metropolitan Sydney and the Nationals were at threat in about three seats outside in the in the rural areas, which would have brought it back to 
um, a hung parliament and a situation where both Labor and the Coalition would need to negotiate with independents and minor parties to form government. So Gladys Berejiklian beat the predictions on that. She did extraordinarily well in the metropolitan area. They only lost one seat and it was enough to yeah, there's, the, there's still counting going on, but it's enough to uh, retain majority government, which is quite a significant victory. As you said, the first female premier to be elected at the polls, and this will be the longest continuous coalition government in New South Wales ever. We've had three-term coalition governments before, but they, of course, now have uh, set four-year terms in New South Wales, which means this coalition government uh, at the time of the next election would have been in power for 12 years. That is quite a considerable achievement. Um, and for Labor, I mean, frankly, they shouldn't have been within a ball's roar of having a chance at this election anyway. They lost the leader uh, 14 weeks um, into uh, before the, the election. Uh, Luke Foley was forced to step down amid uh, sexual harassment claims. Michael Daly, untested as a leader, came into the leadership. There wasn't a, a glaring um, different policy suite put up by Labor. A couple of you know, bibs and bobs here and there and, and, and definitely a bob, a bob car policy <laughs> to, to pay back uh, the increased toll on the M4, which is always popular with punters in the you know, metropolitan ring of, um, of Sydney and uh, trying to focus um, the voters' minds with this symbolic um, difference between a government that was spending uh, hundreds of millions of dollars um, rebuilding stadiums and uh, a, a Labor Party was talking about, you know, funding health and education, those, those you know, common and um, strong suits for, for Labor leaders. But, you know, Michael Daly had just the, the, the week from hell in the last week, those, uh, that recording surfing, surfacing of him making um, very injudicious observations about Asian immigration in Sydney mm. and, uh, and also bungling his way through the leaders' debate not knowing his figures on the funding for um, education and TAFE was just a massive embarrassment. And, you know, politics um, is, is a momentum game at the best of times, but campaigns are definitely all about momentum. The Labor Party had absolutely none of that last week. Gladys Berejiklian mm. had a lot. Tells us that a lot of people made up their minds late, and when they did, they stuck with the person they knew. Mm, yeah, Daly certainly had a shocker. So the big question is, Riles, for the rest of the country, how much can we take away from what we saw in the New South Wales election and apply it to the upcoming federal election? Look, quite a bit, I think, Ange, and, and quite a bit in the context of the other state elections that we've had since the last federal election. So, I mean, really starting with Western, uh, with, with, uh, Western Australia and then looking at Queensland, South Australia, Tasmania, Victoria, and now New South Wales, is a common thread coming through in all those elections. And the common thread is that people are electing centrist governments. They're not electing governments with views on the you know, on the far right or the far left, uh, they want to have a government that occupies the middle ground of politics. That is the big lesson in general. When you look at it, you know, um, even with the with the coalition governments in in South Australia, um, Steve Marshall, a centrist, 
uh, Will Hodgman in Tasmania, definitely a centrist, and um, and Gladys Berejiklian, a, a moderate centrist coalition leader. And then you have um, you know progressive uh, you know centre left governments in Queensland, in Victoria, and now in Western Australia as well. So that's the big lesson in general. The lesson specifically from New South Wales is that people are slowly but appreciably moving away from the major parties that there is now a falling away from the kind of institutional structures of the two-party system and that people are looking for alternatives they're looking what it's what i call uh, laconically the middle finger vote it's that those people who are saying you you characters are just talking about yourself you're self-obsessed um, you know we want people who are talking to us and our beliefs and the sort of things that are affecting our daily lives and our aspirations and our dreams, and that ain't you. It's the minor players who are doing that, and uh, so we're going to take our vote over there. And that certainly happened in in the rural and regional areas in New South Wales and elsewhere in in, in um, those state elections. And it's certainly, I want to circle back to that as well, because that's really an important point. But firstly, I'm curious, um, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, he's sort of been making out, well, yep, that's what's going to happen with us, and really quite optimistic about what we saw in New South Wales, um, and quite confident sounding that that's what they would enjoy at the federal election. Do you think that's too optimistic? Uh, it was really interesting, Ange, on, on Saturday night after the result was declared that uh, Scott Morrison was the opening act for Gladys Berejiklian at her victory party. I've not seen a Prime Minister yeah. make a speech at a state election night, particularly uh, um, uh, opening the curtain on, on the main event, <laughs> but he was very, very keen to get up there and be associated with a winner and to say you know, very uh, almost boastfully that New South Wales will... Uh, return the coalition government at the federal election. Look, I think, I think he's he'd be very, very happy with the result, and it's much better for him than if they would have lost there, because the readout of the Victorian election, particularly, was that there was a quite a significant impact from the brand damage that the Feds have imposed on on the Liberal Party by changing yet another Prime Minister. Uh, mid-term and um, and falling into into that dark pit of self-obsession and uh, and enmity, internal enmity, which voters just hate. They see yeah. it as utterly indulgent. So yeah. he'd be happy that that didn't seem to play out in New South Wales. That people made the distinction between a state election campaign and a federal election campaign. But in the broad for for, for Scott Morrison, if he can hold all his seats in New South Wales, um, now that's a very good thing. He needs to do that because he's you know he's looking like losing a heap. In Victoria and some in Queensland and um, if he loses any in New South Wales well it'll be an absolute landslide but I think he's still looking at a at a flog into nothing. And there are certainly some key differences as you alluded to the leadership transition very different um, for Gladys Berejiklian um, and her predecessor compared to what we saw with Malcolm Turnbull and also as you suggested Michael Daly not the strongest Labor leader and Bill Shorten I guess we've seen him before he can campaign pretty well. Yeah, and the interesting thing about Shorten is that, you know, he's now been leader for five years. Now, uh, you know, I think he's probably the longest serving leader um, in certainly in federally, but longest serving leader almost on the on the political landscape, because of the Kevin Rudd's uh, you know rules, leadership rules, the the things that he shackled the Labor Party with in that um, caucus meeting in in Balmain when he returned to the leadership in. Um, 
uh, you know, at the end of uh, the, the the Gillard period so in twenty thirteen, and 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 that has um, then made Bill Shorten the major beneficiary of that. It's very difficult now to change leaders in the Labor Party. So you've had continuity. You've also had continuity at a um, shadow ministerial level. There are people holding down portfolios there, people like Tony Burke and Penny Wong and Anthony Albanese and Chris Bowen, who have been in those portfolios for five years and have actually held those portfolios previously in government. So, they, you know, they, some of them have six and seven and eight years experience in those portfolio areas, and that accounts for a lot. That means that they've got a, a deep corporate understanding of their briefs and makes them, you know, pretty uh, formidable opponents on the political landscape. The other really interesting thing that we saw in New South Wales was how the National Party fared, um, lost a few key seats that were a surprise. Uh, this be making a few people in Canberra a little nervous about this marriage between the Liberal and National Parties? Yeah, look, it's you know, it's a it's a shotgun marriage at the best of times, <laughs> and you know, um, an, an arranged marriage, a marriage of convenience, whatever you like to call it. But particularly a, a concern after New South Wales, but also Queensland. There was a lot of preferencing away from the National Party. The One Nation Party and, and small independent players had quite a significant role there too in some seats. So uh, it is a deep concern and it's a concern about the National Party affecting product differentiation away from the Liberals to tell their their rural constituency that they, they know their particular needs and that they have a different suite of objectives to the Liberals in the urban seats and that they can then uh, strike themselves out as an independent voice within the coalition. It's something that the Nats have tried to do forever and a day, but it's getting you know, it's getting more difficult for them. And what we found at New, in New South Wales was that traditional National Party voters were turning up at polling booths and they were voting for the shooters or they were mm. voting for an independent. Why? Because they've just had it with the, with the main major party system. Um, they don't believe the Nationals are delivering for them. Um, they've had enough of uh, the infighting and they've had enough of uh, you know all these empty promises from the major players and you know they're, they're anti-establishment anti-institution anti-politics people who want things done for themselves and they see that message coming to them from those smaller party and in, independent players and I think that is a, that, that is something that's been happening progressively over mm. the last um, you know 10 years or so in Australian politics and it's getting to a point now where it's where it's starting to really affect the main game uh, to the extent that um, you know we're, we're m- much more likely to have close results because of uh, once safe seats going to independent and small party players than we when we were in the past. Mm. And do you think that that really kind of started with Pauline Hanson, sort of One Nation, where at the time she was disregarded as some sort of fringe outlier voice and all of a sudden got the support of punters and voters? And I feel like we're seeing that and now again with the shooters. Do you agree? Yes, I do, because, you know, if you, I guess we could, you know, call them disruptors in the, in the sort of Trumpian existence that we live in now, that they're 
uh, Pauline Hanson certainly is, is very good at um, at aggregating all the discontent among people, out, particularly outside of metropolitan areas, but also on the urban fringes, at the failure of the major party system to deliver for them. They hear all these things about the economy going well, and they hear about productivity being up, and they hear about corporate profits being up, and they know that equities are going crazy, and uh, you know that, that interest rates are low, and that unemployment's low, but they don't feel it in their lived existence. They're not getting an increase in pay. They don't feel any any uh, more wealthy. The wealth effect just isn't there. Um, they're dissatisfied with that, and they feel that they're not part of whatever this recovery is that's going on. And people like Pauline Hanson, in their own sort of you know down down home existentialism, speak to that in, in you know in crude terms often, and they speak to it in a way which rejects. The, the, the formality and you know that essential integrity of the main party system and says there's another way you know go, come with us we're the barbarians at the gate we'll just you know we'll, we'll take this mob on and um, we'll make sure that your voice is heard through our voice in Canberra it's a very effective political strategy and certainly one we saw used very effectively by Trump over in the US drain the Absolutely. swamp against political the political establishment he's the alternative and we all thought he wouldn't get in and look what happened yeah. so what does this mean then for the liberal national coalition is this has this political marriage had its day is it time they get in bed with someone else Look, I, I I don't think it it has, and I think they they face that reality. There's it, it's um, you know the the coalition is expressed in different ways in different states now. So you have the LNP, which is basically um, you know now formalised coalition in in Queensland. Uh, you have uh, and I guess the the opposite of the polar opposite of that would be Western Australia, where they're much more separated than they are anywhere else in the in the nation. But federally. They're stuck with each other, and I think they know that. But it's it's an uncomfortable marriage at the at the best of times, and it's one that's a little mystical, really, too, because it's governed by an agreement between the parties that no one ever really knows um, about. No one really knows the detail about it. So this this a coalition agreement signed between the two leaders. Uh, so the Nats see it as a way of ensuring that they're more progressive city-centric partners don't drag them towards some sort of false utopian socialism and the, and the <laughs> lib seat is an unfortunate, unfair but unavoidable price, I guess, of entering um, the, the, this marriage with their country cousins. But so, for example, take Malcolm Turnbull. For him, it meant conceding significant ground on the defining issues of his moderate disposition, the, the um, you know, the word that voters consistently used to describe Turnbull's prime ministership was disappointment. They didn't believe they were getting the real Malcolm. And the mm. truth of the matter is that the real Malcolm was put in a straitjacket by the coalition agreement. Mm. You know, he was forced to sign um, this agreement with um, the then Nationals leader Warren Truss in incredibly fraught and tense circumstances after um, rolling Tony Abbott in September 2015. The Nats demanded that he not agree to, uh, that he agreed to, to not abandon the policy for a plebiscite, for example, on the same-sex marriage. They still believe that was the best option for the coalition to you know, maintain some sort of um, a policy of process towards change, but one that they, they thought would scuttle the change at the same time, and also that he, he wouldn't soften the coalition's stance on climate change and, and, and Turnbull had to hand over control of water policy as well to Truss's eventual successor Barnaby Joyce. When you think about it though, 
same-sex marriage and climate change, these are the two totemic issues that define the, you know, the, the very being of, of Turnbull's you know, beliefs. Mm. And he agreed to sign them away in order to take the top job, opting, opting for power rather than the purity of principle. But, mm. um, and, and the other thing that's a problem is it's a very open marriage. You know, it's one that's lived almost like a reality TV program. It's out <laughs> in the open, you know, and full of conflict. The Nats have always felt free to go and bash the libs in public, which we saw recently, if you think about the Queensland LNP member, George Christensen, dismissing his Liberal City colleagues because they're arguing against um, support for new coal-fired power stations. He called them inner-city latte sippers, which is a kind of ah. reflection they normally reserve for the Greens. But Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this all feeds into this bigger problem that we're talking about. It's viewed from the outside by voters. It looks like a very unhappy marriage, full of argument and in- infighting. And the one thing voters hate is a government arguing among itself and when it should be focused on them and, and the real issues affecting their real lives and real communities. It's what Scott Morrison's taken to deride so often is uh, with that sort of Trumpian disdain as uh, inside the bubble. Well, you know, this marriage is stuck inside the bubble. The Nats want to go one way. They, they know now that they're at threat on their right flank. And there's a real push at the moment for them to move, to chase those votes out to the right. Mm. And the more you chase people out to the fringes, the less likely it is that you'll be re-elected. Certainly a trickier, trickier marriage to make work. Um, But really interesting. And as always, I am looking forward to you leading our election coverage with the campaign coming up. I feel sorry for you. I hope you get a few days rest (laughs) before it all starts because I know you won't sleep for a good Uh, couple of months. I love it. You know, I was saying at the weekend that, you know, it's only round uh, coming up the round two of the AFL round three of the NRL well we're in our final series here in politics this is this is grand <laughs> final time so look I, and I you love it, it which I we love, love. It. I'll be on the road and, and getting to as much as much of Australia as I possibly can I really like elections because you know people often make that reflection about um, we members of the of the press gallery here that we don't get out into real Australia enough well election time is one of those great occasions when we do and meet a heck of a lot of people see real Australia Australia. It's a great thing. It's always exciting. Exactly. And we look forward to it. Thank you so much, Riles. I know you're always busy in the Bureau. We appreciate your time. Pleasure, Ange. After the break, a quick look at the other news that you need to know. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Both US political parties shunned an opportunity to debate climate change on Tuesday when they voted down the Green New Deal proposal, which aimed to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Eric Donaldson, a retired Air Force doctor, is the first person in Australia to receive compensation from the government after groundwater at his property was found to be contaminated by toxic firefighting foams. Rockland County, north of New York City, has declared a state of emergency following a measles outbreak. It has barred unvaccinated children from public spaces with a fine of $750 and up to six months in prison if parents breached the order.
And that is your news fix for this week. Every week, we will dig a little deeper and go behind the headlines with some of the network's most experienced news people. Please subscribe if you have a moment and send us your feedback to podcasts at seven.com.au. News Fix is produced by Seven West Media. Supervising producer is John Buck. Our executive producer is Nikki Hamilton. And the director of news and public affairs is Craig McPherson. I'm Angela Cox. Thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.